as Jaron mentioned, this series, we're looking at these teachings of Jesus that he used a certain mechanism called the parable. Now, if you're not familiar with the word parable, it essentially means teaching a lesson through the telling of a fictional story. And Jesus does this throughout the Gospels. We see many upon many different parables that teach us why, why Jesus was here and his mission or his goal for the world once he was not on the earth in the form of man. Um, when we look at the Gospels, there are certain sections, such as in the book of Luke, where we'll be today, where we see Luke 9 to about Luke 18. And, and although we're used to the Gospels, the story of Jesus being this narrative from beginning to end, telling of Jesus' birth to his death to his resurrection to his ascension, we see Luke right through the chapters of 9 through 18, not really having this narrative thread throughout. It wasn't saying, well, at 8 a.m. Jesus woke up and he walked to this place, and then at 9 a.m. he grabbed brunch. And he didn't, and nowhere in the Gospels or in this part of, of the chapters does he really give this thread. Instead, he gives these different instances of Jesus' teachings, of these parables, and these, the focus of these teachings, the focus of these parables, it wasn't just a moral lesson. It wasn't about how to be a better person. It wasn't seven steps to a happier marriage. He talked about something much bigger than just a moral obligation as a human. He talked about this kingdom that was going to come onto earth that didn't yet exist, but that was becoming prevalent. And, and for those who are hearing it, many of them knew from back in the old days that there was this kingdom to come, that, that God would reign on earth, and he would overcome the enemies of the Israelites. And so they understood this idea of this kingdom coming, but he said, no, 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 I don't think you guys are getting it. And the way that the world currently works, you're going to have to invert it completely. The way that you approach the world, you're going to have to go backwards because the way that you're moving forward right now is not the way of what I'm saying. This is not the kingdom that's coming. You're missing it. And so Luke 9 through 18, he speaks of this kingdom of God that is to come. Specifically in Luke chapter 14, where we'll spend most of our time this morning, we see Jesus interacting with this group of people at this feast. And throughout this time and this feast, he tells these several parables to teach about the way the kingdom of God works. It's very interesting because Jesus is teaching about the way the kingdom of God works around a table, and he speaks about a table when speaking about the kingdom of God. First of all, Jesus, to set everything up, is invited to essentially what we would call Sunday supper. Uh, the Pharisees of the time, after the worship gathering uh, on Sabbath, they would go to someone's home and they would enjoy this meal together. But this wasn't like a anyone can go kind of situation. You had to be considered as qualified. So you had to be a teacher of the law, you had to be a traveling minister, you had to have the credentials to get in. Not anyone would be invited. Now Jesus was a teacher of the law. He was a rabbi, and so he was invited, he was qualified. But what's interesting is, as we may know if we study the Gospels and understand the Pharisees, the Pharisees didn't necessarily have the best intentions in inviting Jesus just because he was qualified didn't mean that they necessarily wanted him to be qualified. 
And it's important to understand this on the front end. For the Pharisees, their understanding of who God is was set by the law. Their understanding of who God was was set by these laws that were both structured in the Old Testament and made even in that current day to to make sure that we were righteous, that we were in right standing with God. And if we're in right standing with God, then we know God. This is the only way that they knew how to interpret God was through these laws. Jesus was qualified, but they would consider him an outlier. He was outside of this understanding of who God is through the laws. He didn't really abide by their structure. They didn't understand how he could say that he proclaims God, yet he doesn't necessarily obey the law that they see in a perfect way. They saw him as an outlier. So they invite him into this supper. And along with him, we find another man who doesn't quite belong. He wouldn't have been considered to be qualified to be there. He was a man who suffered from something called dropsy, which is not like the propensity to drop things on the floor, gravitational pull being heavier on yourself. No, there is this swelling that happens within your body. It's obvious to other people's sight. It's not something that is necessarily going to kill you, but at the end of the day, it is very uncomfortable. And for the Pharisees and their understanding of who God is in the midst of the law, they saw this man with dropsy, and they said, oh, well, he has sinned. He has done something wrong. He is wrong God in the midst of the law. And because of that, he has this dropsy. He would not have been considered qualified to be there. So the question is, why would the Pharisees who see Jesus as an outlier and a man with dropsy who would never be qualified to enter the feast be invited to this table? There are many different interpretations, but the main one that we see is that it's believed the Pharisees were essentially setting up this religious theater. They were putting on this drama for all to see, and they had two places in this drama. First, Jesus, and then the man with dropsy, and they wanted to see how he would interact with them on this day that is Sabbath. It's important to note on the day of Sabbath, anything that can wait until the next day is held off. It's not done on the Sabbath. You are to rest. Now they knew Jesus had healed men previously. And they wanted to see if he would do it here and now. I don't know if you know this, but we consider Jesus to be pretty smart. (laughs) So Jesus understands what's happening, right? Jesus understands that there is something happening at this table. And the Pharisees have set up this great drama. And he says, okay, let's have a drama. And so he looks at the Pharisees and he asks them this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? This is the response the Pharisees gave. Silence. Nothing. Maybe it was with bated breath because they knew that something else was coming. Or maybe they were dumbfounded. I'm not sure exactly their response of silence. But whatever it was, they were waiting to see what Jesus would do next. And Jesus walks over to the man with dropsy and he heals him and he tells him to go. He sets him free from this drama, from being the object in the midst of this dinner. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees again and he asks them this question, if this was your son, or or let's say your son or your ox even fell into a well on Sabbath. 
would you not do everything you could to get them out? And I believe Jesus sets up this new understanding of this law that they thought they interpreted God through. And he says, you wait until Monday. You wait until Sunday. You wait until it's no longer the Sabbath to do the work of God because you do not see it as urgent. Yet a man who is uncomfortable, even he deserves to be healed in the moment. Even he deserves the love of God here and now. If it was not your son, obviously you don't feel that deep connection, but imagine your family member, your ox, the one that you love or you cherish. Would you not do everything you could to save him? And to this, once again, the Pharisees were silent. This time, probably truly dumbfounded. Now, if you go through your week and you like to read scripture, I would recommend going from the beginning of chapter 14 all the way through uh, possibly verse 24. Because this dinner happens over a long period of scripture. And we see these different interactions that Jesus has around the table. So he goes on to have some several, several conversations. And in one of those conversations, he talks about a wedding banquet. He talks about this uh, feast that is to happen and these people who are invited. And he tells a story in response to something that someone says to him. After he tells one parable, one of those who sat at the table who had heard him say this, he said to Jesus these words, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. This was his retort to Jesus saying, whoa, 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 everyone gets to sit at the table. And he's doing two things. First, he's pulling from Jesus saying in just a chapter before that all will eat from the north to the south, the east to the west. Everyone will be able to come to the table. And he says, well, you're trying to make this all about the least of these, the men with the dropsy. You're making this about the crippled and the blind, yet you make no room at the table for us. So Jesus tells the story of a wedding banquet. He replies with this way, a certain man was preaching or was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come, if you know what I mean. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever planned a wedding um, or, you know, if you've ever been a man getting married to, to a wife who uh, is planning a wedding, you don't mess with the bride, ever, right? Like, the, the bride's details are the bride's details. If you mess with one piece of the wedding, there is much to pay. 
Now, if you can imagine at this time in, in history, you would think that it was very different, but there's something very similar in this story as there was for our time today. In this time, they would have sent invites out months ahead of time. You would have had plenty of time to make plans and arrangements to be there. You would have said, yes, this is Phil. Yes, I will be there. I will have the chicken platter. Thank you. And you would send back the RSVP, and they would say, great, let's make sure we have enough chicken for Phil. This is important to make sure we have the food that's necessary for everyone to come. Months occur, and we pick out the cake. We pick out all the festivities. Everything is just right. It is the day of the wedding. The bride is actually happy because everything is going well. And then this man sends his servant out. And the man goes to everyone that's invited. And he goes to the first man, and he says, Hey, just to make sure, Phil, you ordered the chicken. We got the chicken. You're coming, right? You're going to eat the chicken. And Phil said, oh, actually, I just uh, acquired some land, and I'm not going to be able to be there. Now, how many of you have ever bought a house sight unseen? <laughs> this is a lame excuse. If it was truly that he bought it, and let's say even he had seen it before, and this is really the final inspection to make sure that everything is correct, all the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted, You knew for months what was coming, and yet you decided it would be too inconvenient. So he walks, the servant walks to the next guest, and he says, hey, um, just want to make sure you ordered the salmon, right? Okay, you're going to come, you're going to enjoy the salmon, right? Oh, here's the thing. I actually just bought some oxen, and you know how that goes. No, I, I don't. Have you ever bought a car sight unseen? Once again, you don't go check it out afterwards. This is another lame excuse. I think we try to at least justify the last guy when he goes to him. But in any way that we look at it, in each excuse, we find that they had tons of time to plan to be there. Yet, they couldn't make it. And although we all try to justify our excuses, at at the end of the day we say, we don't have time for something, really means we didn't make time for something. We say that we don't have time for something, truly it means we're not making time for it. And in the same way, they prioritized. And they said, this is more important than your banquet. So the servant returns and goes back to his master, and he says, listen, I don't know what happened, but no one wants to come. I don't know if it's your daughter. I don't know if it's the guy. I don't know. Whatever reason, they don't want to come to your banquet and enjoy the chicken and the salmon. And so, infuriated probably, the master says, you know what? We still got the chicken. We still got the salmon. I want you to go through the streets. I want you to begin to invite the blind, the crippled, the lame, the deaf. These people probably knew this banquet was occurring. They just didn't get the invite. They were sitting somewhere outcast, an outlier to the town, but able to see what was happening and what they were missing out on. And this man says, go to them. Bring them back. And so the servant does what his master asks him to do, and he he invites back all of these 
blind and crippled and lame and deaf, all those who would be considered outcasts. And they look around at the banquet. And I'm sure it was a great time, but they looked and there's so much more room. There was probably a table like much, much longer than this and many seats still open. He said, we still got chicken, we still got salmon. So he tells his servant, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the very outskirts, to the highways of our day, to the country lanes. And I want you to find anyone you can. And I want you to compel them. The word compel is throughout this passage, this idea of calling to something, something they did not know of, to invite them into something. If those who know about this don't want to be here, that's fine. But we are going to tell others about it. And when they hear about this banquet, they are not going to want to miss out. Truly, more than likely, the men who would have turned down this invite probably had enough banquets in their life. This was just another meal, just another celebration. But if you could imagine someone who's walking from one town to the other, who is a stranger, who who has no home, no sense of community, nothing outside of themselves, is told, hey, there's this group of people, and they are celebrating It doesn't matter who it is. You get a seat at the table. They are compelled to come to this table. They are compelled to be a part of this banquet. They are told about it, and they realize that if they don't go, they are missing out on something good. Jesus tells a story of a table where Men are invited and pass on the opportunity. And he says, God will take whoever he can take. And he'll bring them to that table and they will have a banquet. Obviously, the men who give these inconvenient excuses probably were the targets here were the Pharisees. Those who had banquet after banquet who probably saw this as another inconvenience. Jesus says that I come for the blind, I come for the cripple, I come for the lame, I come for the deaf, I come for those who have not yet heard about my Father. Those are the ones that I'm going to invite to the table. This is the message that we see Jesus portray, and I think it's, once again, so interesting that he uses the table at a feast, a very practical setting. Now, the table itself is a very powerful tool that I think maybe sometimes we overlook. And in fact, in a fast-paced culture, I think many times we, we trump the table with convenience. Fast food, I think, is the enemy of community. It's the quick option, and it escapes the responsibility to interact with one another. When we look at the table, it's a powerful symbol, not just in the story where Jesus is telling about this God who, who invites the cripple to his table, but it's also powerful within our society. We had one example of that this week. Um, Growing up, I, I never had a dog. Um, I, I just, my parents were not dog people in the least. And I was always so jealous whenever I got to go to my friends' houses 
and they had dogs. I would focus more on the dog than the friend, which is probably why I didn't have any friends. But <laughs> <laughs> the dog's my friends. So much of my, my life I spent just, I wanted a dog. And so I became an adult, and I thought, you know what? No one can stop me from getting a dog, except for my roommates. I convinced them, though, and we got a dog. We drove to this little town that some of you actually in this room may know, called Anderson, Indiana. We took a two-hour drive from our home. My friend Joel and I picked up this puppy and brought him home. And he was my first dog I've ever had. And I loved him. He was my companion. Um, he got us through many dark days and made the, the bright ones even brighter. And for seven years, we built this just story of adventure. In fact, I named him after a John Steinbeck novel, Travels with Charlie. It's C-H-A-R-E-L-Y, for anyone curious. And Travels with Charlie. And it was about John Steinbeck going around the country with his dog, Charlie. And we took this dog from Ohio, and we moved across country with him. And he logged so many miles in seven years. He went camping every part of the state. He went so many different, on so many different adventures. Um, and, and so we were so excited. Um, if you don't know, my wife is now 29 weeks pregnant. And um, we were so excited for this dog because he loves children so much that we were going to have our daughter Eleanor and our dog Charlie, and it was going to be a great relationship. What we didn't foresee, as many times we don't, is something unraveling in our lives. And over the last 10 days, we went over through a heartbreak as our dog's liver failed. And uh, what's really interesting, and I don't tell a story to try to make people cry or to make you hug your dog a little bit closer when you get home, which I recommend you do, but <laughs> I tell the story because people's response. Not only are there heartfelt sentiments, so many people called, so many people messaged over Facebook or uh, over text, or we had flowers sent our way, but one of the most powerful ways that people responded was saying, let's gather at a table. Let's sit at a table Let's share a meal. There's something in our genome, something so deep and innate within us that says that when we are hurting, there is something at the table to be found. We have a a couple friends who came over the other night, and, and I don't know if they understand this, but they were Jesus to us. They met us at a table where we were hurting, And we sat across each other. And we didn't even really talk about Charlie. Yet there was something healing and restoring about that time. Something powerful happens through the framework of the table. And Jesus wants us to get this. There's something very physical and tangible, but there's also something very metaphorical about the table. And he says, this is the kingdom of God, where we gather around and those who are broken and hurting are healed and restored. This is the table where even when we don't have Jesus in flesh, we are Jesus to one another, what we call the incarnation of the Messiah on earth. And we experience healing. We experience restoration. We experience joy. This is a place we gather with such power 
and fervor to be able to bring about healing and change. We see this table is not only a message from Jesus and not only something that we see as a powerful symbol in our life, but it's throughout the narrative of Scripture. One place where we see it is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, starting with verse 6. God speaks to his people Israel uh, through the prophet Isaiah saying these words, painting a picture of what is to come. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats and finest of, uh, of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is being spoken in a time where that same law that the Pharisees used to have a framework for who God was acted as a mirror to the world, showing it its brokenness. And all there was was the evidence of brokenness, of we can't fix it. There is hurt, and we can't restore it fully. There is sin, and we can't abolish it completely. We go back and cleanse ourselves, yet we become dirty again. And in this time, in this passage, we see that God says to them, there is something coming. There is a table that is coming. And although you know brokenness now, there is a time of healing that is coming. And that's when we see Jesus enter the picture. Luke chapter 14, there is a table. And although brokenness is still around us, and although we experience death, and although we have tears that fall from our face, and although there is pain, there are moments in the midst of the brokenness where the table enters. And in that moment, we find restoration. In that moment, we can find healing. In that moment, we know joy. The table is here. In the midst of our brokenness, it still exists. In the midst of all that we see as wrong, we know that something can be right. And although it might not be fixed tomorrow, we know that this table is here and it will continue to heal us throughout. This is the message that we hear, not only of yesterday and of Jesus' time, but here and now. And we live in the Luke 14. We live in a broken world where the table can intercept us and interact with us. This can happen physically, obviously, We have the tangible call to be able to take the table and invite people around it and to actually have a physical meal. If you notice uh, this china that's up here, this uh, I'll be very careful with because it's our wedding china. Um, And my wife is in the audience and you all wouldn't have to tell her it happened because she would see it. Um, This is our wedding china. If if you've been through the wedding process, you know that there is this uh, very exhaustive process of selecting the items that will fill your home. Um, 
you get the cool gun, which is the, for the guys. I think the main reason they have the gun is because it makes it fun for boys. And we go through, and we go through William Sonoma, and we shoot at things that we think we need. And it's interesting your your idea of what is necessary before you get married, and after. What I will say is that we thought it was very important to have China. What I'll also say is this is the first time in five years that China has been out of the box. <laughs> we have yet to use this China that we felt was so critical to our marriage, the very saving fabric of our marriage, obviously. This was something that we thought would be critical, yet we've never used it. I always thought it, was a, it would be a great idea. It's something we haven't done yet, but I would love to go to one of our parks, maybe downtown. And I would love to get a long table. And I would love for us to take our china. And I would love for others to take their unused china that sits in some cabinet with great lighting. (laughs) And I would like for us to go and set a table. And then whoever we can find, the broken, the crippled, the lame, the deaf, those who have never heard or encountered Jesus and let them gather at the table and to eat a meal off the china. God provides us with a table. God provides us with the ability to set it. The question is, do we ever break it out? Do we ever actually utilize it? Do we ever set the table and invite people to it? Obviously, not everything happens around the table. Relationally, we can set the table in our lives to invite people and interact with them. Your day-to-day, coming across coworkers who are hurting, coming across neighbors who are broken, coming across family members and friends who have yet to encounter what can come from it to know the healing power. This is something that we're called to. And I I would stress this. Those who set the table set the message. Those who set the table set the message. If you are the one who sets the table, you set the recipe for the night. You set the experience that someone walks away with. You have been to chaotic homes for dinner. I know it. And you left as like an anxious ball. There are other people you go to their home and you sit down at their table and there's nothing but peace and comfort. Those who set the table set the message. Please remember that, that your life is a table for others to experience whatever it is that you're offering. May it be the peace of Jesus that people experience. May it be the healing power of God that people experience. May it be the restorative power of his message that people experience. And may we even allow for ourselves to go outside the comfort zone to invite a chair to someone we normally wouldn't to find the blind, the cripple, the deaf, the lame, those who are in need of the gospel message. The truth is that you and I, we are saints, we are ministers, we are priests. I know we don't have the collars to show it. But the gospel calls us all to this ministry. It's not just Jared. It's not just full time. It's whoever calls themselves a follower of Christ. 
Whoever has a table, it is your responsibility. As we close, um, I, I would point to something that is coming. In Isaiah 25, we see that the world is broken, but the table is coming. In Luke 14, we see Jesus say that the table is in the midst of the broken world. And then Revelation 19 tells us the table abolishes the brokenness. Listen to these words quickly, and then we'll move forward to worship. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water sand, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, there, these are the true words of God. This is the eternal table that is coming. And we get an example of it here and now in the midst of the brokenness. This will become permanent. This will become the experience that we hold on to forever. And we are the agents who bring it about here and now on earth. That tears are wiped away. We always close with communion. And I thought it was so interesting that we would close communion uh, with communion on a week that we're speaking of a table. Because one of the greatest moments or greatest symbols that we have within our faith happens around this table, and it is the moment of communion. And as we look at communion, we see this Last Supper over Passover where Jesus and his disciples interact. And in the midst of it, Jesus stops the disciples to tell them something important. Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So we see Jesus here, continuing on. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. He said, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And saying this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In times of loneliness and despair, where we feel no one else will gather at the table with us, there is a table with two seats. And there is Christ. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he said, this is for you. 
And then he takes the cup and he passes to us. And he said, this also is for you. No matter where in your life you are, no matter the chaos that surrounds you, there is a table with the elements. A table with his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. A reminder that in the midst of Jesus' pain, he said there is a table greater than this coming. This morning I invite you to gather and to come to the table. Those who are weary, those who are wanderers, those who are wayfarers, those who struggle this morning. Maybe you struggle in your faith. And maybe you're even thinking now, you know what, I've never actually accepted the invitation to the table. And if that's you this morning, I invite you to take part for the first time in the elements in a way of experiencing the salvation that comes from Christ. For those who have been to the table many times, this morning may you find rest, healing, and comfort. May you find the salvation that comes in knowing Christ and all that results in it in this world. Come to the table. You're invited to take part.